Pushing Back Chaos with Mel and Mike and Raph. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Pushing Back Chaos. Man, that sounds good in regular English, doesn't it? Not uh, not Melon's version of, you know, the Pushing Back Chaos. It's me, <laughs> Paul Melon McAsshole, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he's not here. He's not here. He's uh, he's being a good mate this week. He's taking his lovely wife, Cheza which we still don't understand why you're with him. But anyway, uh, they're out on a nice date. They don't get out much because they're always uh, thinking of other people. So uh, Mellon put on his uh, short shorts, his his suit jacket and his tie and took his wife out to a lovely night on the town. So we hope you're uh, successful and uh, getting it in there, Mellon. Anyways. <laughs> and by and by success, successful, I'm assuming a successful Australian date is basically them just getting completely pissed. Like just drinking, just getting like frosty after frost. Like he's probably pissed as drunk as we speak right now. And she's probably, carrying his, he's, he's carrying, yeah, she's carrying his big lug ass back to the house. He knows we're recording right now and they're sitting at the table and he's just talking mad shit as he's pounding his, his brown Gatorade, you know, yeah. just hating, just spitting the hate. And, and you know what, too? It's funny. The last episode last week, he's like, you know what I'm going to do since everybody loves me better and I'm the whole show. I'm going to do a solo episode. So notice we kicked his ass off this week and uh, maybe next week he will do a solo episode. And then in that case, we ask you to not listen to the show. <laughs> just just so ratings plummet and make a point. Yeah, that would be great if we can just get the public's help on that. When Mellon does do his solo, if you could just berate him. Yeah. Hashtag team Raph, hashtag team Mike, hashtag... See you next Tuesday, Melon. <laughs> <laughs> well, so anyways, uh, filling the 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 very small gap uh, of Melon, we have a a lot better personality here. Raph, would you like to introduce your uh, your your friend and former teammate, coworker? What would you, what... Yeah, dude, absolutely, man. So this is a long time coming, as uh, Mike can attest. I've actually have brought uh, her name up several times and it, and it kind of just took a while uh, just because of life. She's been busy. I've been busy, but we did uh, end up connecting. I don't even know how, how long ago it was, but uh, I happened to be in the kind I was in Honolulu and I was like, it just dawned on me that she was still there. Cause I thought she'd already moved away and we had some beers and after just catching up with her and it was just like, you know, you know, when you have really, really good friends, it's like you fucking never left. It's like one of those, like it literally, you pick up right where you left off. You know, it doesn't matter if it was years later. Um, and that's just how it felt. And then I was like, gosh, she's still such a badass. And I thought she really needs to come on the show. Like, I really think people need to hear her stories and her thoughts. And so, yeah, luckily for us, she said, yes, she's got like, again, she's got a lot on her plate, but she carved out some time. So I'm really, really thankful. Uh, so it's my friend, Taylor Pierce, but that's her maiden name. Uh, but that's funny because even on my phone, I still have you as as Lieutenant. She's a major now, but I still have you as Lieutenant Pierce, which is kind of funny. I never changed it. <laughs> that's okay. I can I can go with that for a while. I'll, I'll stick yeah. with Lieutenant. It was the heyday. <laughs> yeah. So just a uh, just a real quick backstory between Taylor and I. We. Um, I was in the I was in the assault world for most of my beginning of my first half of my career, I should say. And I, I talked about this before on one of the episodes where I literally, you know, when you're in the assault world, anything outside of assault is just 
I'm not going to say the G-A-Y the uh, word, but it's like, that's literally like in the assault world, it's like, oh, it's medevac. You know, if you're not the first on the scene, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I had this ridiculous notion of like medevac, you know, somehow they're like a second tier outfit. And I completely, I remember a couple nights when we did do missions and I remember thinking to myself, this is way harder than anything I've ever done. Because when you do assaults, you bring everything in the, in the kitchen sink. When you're in the medevac, it's fucking, you're, 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 everything's hanging out in the wind and you're exposed to a lot. I mean, I, I mean, there's just, we can go into stories about stuff in Afghanistan, um, but not to mention you also have, you know, the most precious cargo, which is American soldiers or, or allied forces that are injured or hopefully not deceased, but we did have to carry some deceased um, heroes a couple times. Um, and nothing is more, I think important. And that, that was a harsh realization almost immediately. And I just kind of ate my own words. So it completely changed my attitude. And, I, and so I'm just bringing that up because it was people like Taylor and, and other people in our, in that unit that really made me appreciate what medevac is. And like, I'll always wear that badge with honor, like knowing that I was a medevac pilot, even if it was just for a short three years out of my, you know, 12, 14, 15 year career um, as a pilot, it was probably one of the most precious just because of what we did. Um, but yeah, we spent some time in Afghanistan. We spent some time in Savannah, Georgia, lots of shenanigans to be had. I'd say most of the time, uh, with some like sprinkled sober moments where it was like, holy shit, you know, come to Jesus moments. Um, but we had a solid crew. I mean, it was most of the days we literally laughed like straight up belly laughs because, you know, things were ridiculous. And Taylor was one of our fear fearless leaders. Her call sign, uh, with us was mama llama. Cause we were the combat llamas. We didn't really take ourselves too seriously, but we wanted to be ferocious, but like still kind of cool. So we thought the llama was kind of like that perfect animal because it can be kind, but it'll spit on your face if you really fuck with it too long. <laughs> and she, and so she was one of our she was one of our platoon leaders. It just seemed a perfect, you know. She was the mama. She was mama llama. She was running the show. So, anyways, um, yeah. Welcome to the show, Taylor. Thank you. Well, to clarify the combat llama too, our whole entire situation on that deployment was unique and that we had 60 days notice to deploy, which for conventional forces is unheard of. Um, so just the entire shit show <laughs> leading up to the deployment and the amount of expectations and like the, no one knows what's going on, complete shenanigans. And then strangers that like, I knew Raph a little bit, which I can go into a good story about how I actually met him um, <laughs> in Jersey on a TDY trip. <laughs> Uh, but I think the combat llama was birthed um, in that confusion, in that chaos, because it was just just ridiculous. And so the most ridiculous mascot animal for an army unit, instead of like barbarians or warriors or Spartans or, you know, the traditional like uh, mascots, which is the combat llamas, which just, just fit it. And the group of personalities on that specific deployment, I mean, we still, I think there's maybe two, two people left in the army in there, and I'm one of them. Um, and we still have a group chat that like every holiday we touch base and stuff. And it just shows how, how unique that group was that, that we went on together. I, I'm already curious about some of the stuff coming out and seeing Raph's reactions as you're talking about <laughs> Jersey and, somebody, and, and llamas, man, when I picture Raph, I picture him in Jersey with llamas. Like, I don't know that all matches up and makes sense. I'm not going to get in what else I picture. But uh, I think I think the listeners already kind of know. So, but, um, well, Raph, can I tell the story? Can I tell the TDY story? 
Absolutely. I'm just going to preface it. I'm going to, pre I'm going to preface it real quick. So I had one job that I didn't even do. Like I was, I was basically going there for one job that I found myself unable to execute. And luckily I had a great team who just did it for me. And I'll just leave it at that. And we've all had those moments. So it's really one of those, you know, you, you learn that you want to surround yourself with good people. Anyways, go on. Uh, so I guess like a flashback, right? So we're, we're post-deployment, we're filling out a survey and there's one, you know, they take, they'll ask all the drinking questions and there. There's one question that's like, have you ever found yourself unable to perform duties due to alcohol? And I just look back at Brad and he knows without even saying a word, he just starts laughing. So what had happened was um, I was the DD for the night. Um, and so we're, we're going out, start off as a nice dinner. Raph is training. Um, he's doing, he's keeps swearing. He's going on this like giant rock in the morning. Hey, I can't drink. I'm going on this rock. Hey, I can't drink. I'm going on this rock. He's going toe to toe with this old ass Irish guy, our SP, Phil Hosey. So Phil Hosey's just like Jameson all night straight, whatever. Raph's like, oh, I'm, I'm running in the morning, so I can't drink. So he's taking a shot, and then he's like drinking water, taking a shot, drinking water. I can't drink. I can't drink. I'll be fine. I got to go run in the morning. So everyone's sauce at this point. I'm driving home. There's like, everyone's like, there's at one point, there was like a foot coming up from the back seat. There was someone farted. I don't know who it was. Um, they're laughing about boobs. <laughs> like, there was like an album cover that came on from like, from someone's iPod and had boobs on it. So we're laughing about boobs and farting. Like it was just, everyone devolved into like their 12 year old boy self, right? Um, we get back to the hotel. Phil Hodes, the old Irish guy, is like, I'm, I'm pissed drunk. I need to go to bed. We stay at the hotel bar. Close it completely down. So Raph's still like, I'm running in the morning, guys. I can't do this. Again, shot water, shot water. Um, at one point, someone like lights up a cigarette in the hotel bar. Like we get kicked out. Like we close it down. We get kicked out. So I, I end up, because we're at the hotel, so I ended up drinking that then too. So we wake up, everyone's hungover. Like we're in the lobby, just like dying. Um, and we're waiting for Raph. And we're waiting for Raph. And we're waiting for Raph. And finally, Phil Hosey, who's totally fine, by the way, this old Irish guy who was like totally sauce, farting, like uh, reverting to his 12 year old self, totally fine. He's like taking, he's like fathering everybody. Like, do you guys want some Gatorade? Like, we can go stop and get sandwiches. Like, because he didn't drink. He knew his limits, got pissed drunk, and then went to bed. So he's like, I'll, I'll go check on Raph. He opened the door, and apparently there's like piles of vomit all over Raph's room. And you open the door, like, unable to, like, even, like, get a spot of sunlight in through the crack. Like, he's like, are you coming down today? He's like, uh, no. <laughs> His job, like he said, he's the maintenance test pilot. So we're picking up these brand new aircraft from the factory. Like, he's the only person in our group who can, like, test these aircraft to make sure that they're okay. And he can't do that now. Like he's physically unable to remove himself from the room to complete this one job that he has. And so, so there's like me, I'm a brand new lieutenant. I'm still in progression. I don't, I'm not even like a real pilot yet. Uh, and I'm like trying to like, to look through these aircraft and like make sure everything's there and like do these, do these assessments. And then, um, and then Phil's like trying to cover for him because he's the best he knows how. So we get everything ready. And then we finally, somehow, I don't know how, what magic words Phil got to get permission to go the next day. We could extend it another day so that we didn't have to leave that day because we could not. You could not get behind a wheel, let alone an aircraft. 
that day. So, so we got extended another day and I don't think, I don't even think we even drank that. I think we went to like the shore or something and like, just did like a, it was like a very PG, like family day. Like we got like churros or something. Um, and I think we all went to bed at like seven. Um, but that was, I, I, I hadn't, I'd seen him around, but I had not really interacted with him until then. <laughs> I just could not stop. That is like, that was my first impression of Raph. So for the listeners, uh. if you, if you just listen to that story and, and you see why Melon and I just constantly rip on Raph because he's like, Hey, I'm coming on. Like he just did it. It's like, I'm coming on. And then doesn't show up for like 90 minutes. And then we're just like, where the, where, where the fuck is he? You know, it, now you know what he did. He practiced this throughout his career as a respectable warrant officer, showing up to do one job and not doing it. And then finding a way to not do it. That's literally what he does now in his re- re- retired life. And on the show, he brings all these qualities. See, I get ripped on. You know, he's like, oh, go warrant, go warrant. It's just like, dude, I literally don't want to be like you. I actually show up to work. You, you know, I actually care. This is all not coincidence, Raph. <laughs> I, uh, I've i got nothing. I'm going to take the high ground and I'm going to just go and plead the fifth. The fifth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, Taylor, uh, Kind of, uh, number one, I'm, I'm sorry you know, Raph. I, I, I have to apologize for him all the time, right? After I, I build him up because he actually does have some gold that he shares once in a while. But then when people meet him, they're just like, that fucking guy? So um, I do apologize on behalf of the, the show. But uh, why don't you kind of give us a background of your story, kind of like where you came from, how you came up, how you got to your current position, uh, what drove you there? Did you was there a person or a situation that kind of drove you towards this route and and being in medevac and all that? Yeah, so um, I uh, both my parents were military. Uh, my mom was an army nurse. My dad was a helicopter pilot. So they together made medevac babies. <laughs> so I'm a medevac pilot. Uh, one of my younger brothers is a medevac pilot. My other two brothers, one's an army nurse, and the other one um, just went into um, Oh, uh, electronic warfare. Um, they're just graduated. So they're in their, well, the electronic warfare one's doing a scholarship. He's like stupid smart. I can't even explain what he does. He's stupid smart. Um, so, I mean, going into the military was almost a break for me because my parents were so strict growing up. Uh, so my, I was like, my curfew actually got extended. Even when uh, I ended up going to West Point. Um, and so like, I thought West Point was less strict than my house growing up. Um, that says anything about my upbringing, um, West Point, um, I just guess I had, I kind of talked about this to you guys a little bit offline, but, um, my initial years at West Point, I just, I had a, a little bit of an internal struggle because I had a hard time accepting things as they are like, right. Like, why do I have to space my hangers? Why do we have this curfew? A lot of whys, a lot of like, I can't just accept things because I'm told to do them. Um, and there was a, there was a big struggle and I almost, I almost left. Um, but I had this mentor, um, who sat me down and he's like, I recognize this like rebellious side of you. Um, but I think you can channel it. I think you have the ability to channel it and fight for the right things. And he's like, you're gonna have to pick and choose your battles. You can't fight all the stupid things the army does. He's like, but you can fight to make the changes and make the changes from within. And that mentality has totally driven the rest of my mentality for my career. And so when I, when I hear 
or when I'm told to do things that don't make sense, um, you know, I gotta have to filter it, right? So I'm like, is it worth the fight that it is? Um, and either one, trying to change it or two, try to digest it in a way that does make sense. And I think as, as I kind of grew up through the ranks and became a leader to more and more people, I think one thing that helped um, was if I digested it in, in a way that made sense or like, hey guys, like, I know this doesn't make sense, but we're gonna do this and this is how we're gonna do it. And this is how it's gonna like least impact you. Or this is how like, it's gonna make it, like, let me try to make it make sense or help me make it make sense for you guys. Like, let's make the most of it. Um, that was kind of my mentality um, growing up. So that was my first shaping, I think, um, for what kind of leader and what kind of officer I wanted to be. Um, later on, to, to go specifically to Benevac, um, I knew I kind of wanted to do medical service corps. There's no, my grandma was a nurse, my, my mom was a nurse. If West Point had offered nursing, I would have done nursing, um, but they didn't, they just had medical service corps. So I was, I was kind of set on that, but it wasn't until um, we were doing a, an exercise and there was a, a static display of helicopters and there was this female major who flew in a Lakota. Um, she got out, she was, <laughs> not, to, not to knock on a lot of the West Point instructors, but at the time, they were, they were all kind of crotchety and old, especially the women. Um, and so I didn't really like resonate with any, I was 20, right? And like, um, I was like, oh man, I gotta like, you get the, the kernel haircut, right? With like the helmet haircut. Uh, and I was like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm gonna like make it in for 20 years, but there's this female major that came out of the aircraft, blonde, gorgeous. Um, and she's asking all the seniors, hey, what do you want to branch, what do you want to branch? And I told her I wanted to branch medical service corps. And she's like, oh, you can be a medevac pilot. And I was like, it was like skies parted, like angels sang. And I was like, that's what I want to do because I've just always been adventurous. I've always wanted to go do the exciting things. Um, but I also really wanted to do something with a medical mission. So that just made sense for me. And so ever since then, I did everything I could to get selected for medevac. Um, and I got selected, um, graduated, um, and went to flight school and, and Bullock and everything. Um, my first duty station was in Korea had a blast there. That was the most fun I've ever had flying. Met a bunch of really great people there. Um, then got stationed into Savannah um, for a couple of years. Went through two deployments in Savannah, both in Afghanistan. Two very different deployments. Um, <laughs> my first deployment, as we spoke kind of uh, briefly on that, was very unique. And I didn't realize, I got jaded because I didn't realize how unique it was. That was my expectation going forward for my next deployment. And then my next deployment, I deployed very conventionally in the whole like calm air waiting through Kuwait for like three weeks, like that whole thing. And I was like, I've done it the other way. I know this doesn't have to be this hard. And there's that like rebellious thought process. Like, I know I've done it. Like, why are we doing it this way? Uh, so now I, I got to live through that fun, fun experience. Um, so then when I really redeployed in my second deployment to go to grad school, um, as I got older and my family started to get older and we wanted to have kids, um, I realized medevac has been really, really fun. Um, and I also had a couple, to be honest, I had a couple scares and we can go into that, those details too, at a class A accident. Um, I got shot in my second deployment, came home with a purple heart. Um, and so I realized like, all right, it's been fun. I'm, I'm getting in my thirties now. I, I want to kind of settle down. So still want to do the medical mission, still want to be part of the army. Um, but I wanted to do something a little bit more nine to five air conditioned. Um, so I went to, went to graduate school for hospital administration. Um, and so I went to the Army Baylor program in San Antonio um, and got my MBA and my MHA. Um, and, and then uh, after that, of course, the Army won't like, doesn't like me to let, let go. They need people in the operational forces. And so they're like, hey, cool. Um, I know like that you got your grad school done, but like we want you to come back in the conventional force and be a medevac pilot. 
So um, went to Hawaii after graduate school, went to Hawaii, um, took command of the medevac company there. And um, once that was done, now in uh, the brigade aeromedical evacuation officer position. Um, and due to events that we can we can dig into a little bit more later, um, I actually made the decision to transition out. Um, so looking forward to getting out. I don't know what's in store for me in the future, but I'm kind of in a limbo right now as, as that packet's waiting to get approved. Um, but looking forward to bringing all the experience that I've had um, into the future with me. That's uh, no short list there. That That's half a book already uh, of uh, <laughs> stuff we jumped into. Um, one thing that popped out right there at the end was, uh, you know, putting your package in. I, I think if uh, maybe you could give me a hand because I've been denied warrant officer 16 times now. And uh, yeah, according to Rat, he, he keeps digging his fingers into the process and ha keeps having my papers pulled, you know, so I think I'm ready to grow up, as he says, you know, I'm yeah. 34. I think I'm ready to grow up and, and be a real soldier. Uh, but Raf won't let me. He's like my big brother that just keeps messing with me. So if you have any points or connections, you know, it's time. But, well, uh, I, I might. I'm, I used to. It's funny as you get older. Like when you first get in, and you you think of like HRC and all the people pulling the strings behind everything. They're just so ominous and like, oh, like I don't know, unknowing. Um, but then as you get older and you start actually knowing people in those high positions, it's the weirdest thing. You're like, oh my gosh, I went to flight school with that guy. Like I know I knew him when he was struggling to hover, and now he's like the standardization pilot for this brigade. <laughs> like, how does that happen? How am I the old person now? Um, and so that's been, it's been just a weird experience. It, it is pretty crazy. I remember there's this dude named Wes Hunt, Wesley Hunt. He's actually a congressman now down in uh, one of the districts in Houston, I think. I think it's in Houston. Anyways, we were in SEER school together and, you know, we were like in uh, flight school together. He ended up tracking Apaches, uh, but I'd see him around the campus and stuff. Really super dude, uh, really super cool guy, power lifter. It's, just, it's funny that just like you start off at like these early stages and we're all just a bunch of noobs and like, you know, we don't know our a-holes from a hole in the ground. And then like once we're older and you start seeing what people achieve, it's kind of like, holy crap, that's that's kind of cool to watch. Like, yeah, it's like you said, like, how are you the stands guy? You could barely hover. It's what felt like two years ago, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So but speaking of, sorry, speaking of flying, uh, it, I was going to bring up that one of the, every you know, every deployment is always accented with like a significant event or maybe multiple significant events. And I would have to say that, that I had a couple in that 2015 deployment. One of them clearly was when I just got woken up in the middle of the night and I was just told that, that you had crashed. That's all, that's all they told me. Holy shit. Like they said, um, Camp Pierce. And I think they, um, so wait, who was your, who was the IP? Richards, Aaron Richards. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. AA Ron. Yep. So I just remember, yeah, I remember them just saying, um, like they just like knocked on my door, woke me up. They're like, Hey, our, one of our helos just went down. That's all they told me. I'm like, what? They're like, yeah, Cam Pierce and a and double a were on it. I was like, so immediately I'm like, Oh fuck. You know? So it's like all, all, uh, all, everybody's man in the deck and we're trying to get as many details and, and this whole night unfolds. But I remember that was like just those sheer minutes of like, I, cause you know, you just imagine the worst because in my previous deployment, we had lost two helicopters with entire crews gone. So I was just like, like, I, I remember thinking to myself, I'm not ready. Like, I'm not ready to, to deal with whatever the hell is in front of me. Luckily you guys all survived. 
uh, and you can probably give all the details because you were inside riding the pony. But um, yeah, it was, I mean, you survived something that is, I wouldn't say is unsurvivable, but um, fuck, man, it's, it's uh, those, that's a significant event in a helicopter. So Taylor, yep. how, how old are you now? If you don't mind me asking, I know you're not supposed to ask women that, but. 33. 33, 33 years young. Okay. So let me just recap real quick. You joined the army, you went to West Point, which was less hard than being home, which is pretty, <laughs> pretty remarkable. Uh, you, you became a, a pilot medevac. You were shot and were in a helicopter crash all by 33 years old. Yes. All of those things. Wow. Which is yeah, I, don't know. I don't know if I'm yeah. the luckiest pilot alive or the unluckiest pilot alive because two deployments within the first two months of each of those deployments, significant events have happened and I've walked away 99% unscathed. So I don't know. And that's another big reason why the shift in mentality of like, uh, you know, I, you know, there's something to be said about three strikes and I don't know, honestly, I don't know if there, I would last for a third strike. It's going, going my rate. So I'm happy to do, you know, finance and accounting in a, in a hospital basement somewhere. Yeah. So I, I'd like to touch on that real quick because, you know, I, I've been, well, the three of us have, have all really spoken about hard times and, and combat and dealing with loss and flirting with situations like that. How has that kind of changed your views, perspectives, your filters on life when good and bad things happen? So like prior to getting shot, crashing versus now, what's changed for you in life? How do you see life, your your daily interactions when you wake up in the morning, like everything? What would you say has changed the most because of those experiences? That's a really good question. And something that I've actually, one of the reasons I can answer that today is because of really good therapy, honestly. Um, because for a long time, I was young and like carefree and like, cool, I fucking survived this. Like, what's next? Like, and I think a lot of us do that because the mission continues on. Um, I was grounded after the first accident, but the when I got shot, I was on duty and I stayed on duty, right? Because you still have the adrenaline going, you're still in the fight. It wasn't until you come home and things slow down for a minute that you're like, holy shit. And that's when everything kind of catches up to you. And so I actually struggled with PTSD for a while without even knowing about it. My husband definitely brought it up because he's like, you are emotionless. Like you don't show any emotion, like what happened to you? And I'm like, well, what, you know, whatever. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and so it actually took uh, a long time for me to recognize it. Um, and in therapy, and I actually went to, it's a, a cognitive processing therapy, which is um, a specific um, structured therapy for PTSD that helped me sort out a lot of those. Like, how do I see the world? What can I do about that? How do I um, deal with that? Um, and so I think the biggest thing for me is a lot of both of these scenarios happened completely out of blue. So I wasn't going into a firefight. I wasn't knowingly stepping anything in. And, and in my situation, I don't want to diminish others by saying, you know, what had happened to me is significant, but obviously people have gone through way, way worse and have seen way, way worse. It's just, this is what happened to me. And this is how my brain and my body processed it. Um, but my situation was very much out of the blue, going doing training flights or going on a straight and level medevac mission and, and out of the blue, these things happen. And so for me, it affected my sense of safety um, and that literally at any point in any time, things bad things can happen. Um, and when I really started to notice it was with my children um, and just really 
crazy stuff. Like I was uh, out playing on a playground with my three, well, he was two at the time. Actually, I think he was one at the time. Um, and we live on a military base right now. Um, and I just remember, oh my God, what if someone decides to drive by because they hate the military and they decide to shoot up this playground. And I was like bawling at this playground for absolutely no reason for like nothing um, to spark it, right? Except for my own thoughts and my own head. Um, and that's when I realized like, normal people probably don't do this. <laughs> so there's probably something there that I need to explore a little bit. Um, same thing with, um, you know, there's all these horrific stories in the news and, and bad stuff does happen. You could be growing grocery shopping. Your kid could be at school. And unfortunately this shit happens. But, but for me, it would really, really, I mean, I would be bawling. I'd read this stuff on the news and I would be bawling. Um, or I'd be driving down the street and say, oh my God, what if, what if a car just decides to run a red light and hit me? Um, and so that's when I kind of decided to, to, to break that down. And one thing that's helped me is again, the, the therapy. Um, so for example, um, there was a, there's a video of, I think it was LA. Um, some nurse was driving like hundred miles an hour through a red light and she sped through it and like crashed and like incinerated these two cars and killed, I think like four or five people immediately and that was one of the times I was just I was driving to like I was going 10 miles an hour on base right so like not really in any sort of danger but all of a sudden my 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 son was in the back seat and I'm like oh my god what if someone like just what if that was us and someone just came out of here and you can't control that right so there's a sense of control and you're out of control and you never know when like you know meteor falls from the sky and you're gonna get struck down now and that's your time but I just remember thinking like oh my god what if that happens you know you never know when things are gonna happen just like that one time I got shot in Afghanistan oh, wait, okay, brain, you're doing that PTSD thing again. Um, and so I was able to like, okay, feel like you're allowed to feel like the panic, right? But like, all right, reel it back in. It's not real. Everyone's buckled in. You're doing what you can. Um, and so there's, there's different um, processing and, and therapeutic ways to kind of like, I, I get reel it back in isn't the right word, but like, but kind of calm back down and like recenter yourself. Um, so for me, that's been, that's been my struggle in, in the way that I view the world. And it's hard because the news is not kind <laughs> to stuff like that, which is like, you know, just these horrific, horrific events that happened to these, all these innocent people. Um, but it really, it really affected me differently, but I'm, I'm in a better place now for sure. And I can kind of recognize it. Um, but I think that's, that's been my impact and, and flying, I still flew after all those incidences, but it was very different. Um, a lot less risky, a lot less carefree, a lot more, okay, I'm going to do literally everything in my power to prevent, you know, very, very thorough, very meticulous um, on, every, on every process pre-flight system that I could do to prevent an accident. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you opening up and like talking about that. So, uh, you know, I've, I've spoken on it that I, I struggled for a long time uh, with a lot of the same things myself. I know Raf has. We talked about a deployment in Afghanistan where things should have been talked about and they weren't. And it wasn't until years later that him and I were hanging out that we were like, hey, do you remember that one time? And it's like, yeah, I do. And it's like, oh, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because like we, we should talk about this. You know, and it was kind of a surprise of like, why don't we just do this earlier? You know, like we knew this bothered us, but, you know, we're like best friends. And like, why can't we talk about this sort of stuff? It's always got to be like the, you know, the sexy stuff, the, you know, like you said, the assault and everybody wants to hear all this crazy stuff. But it's just like, what about the really bad stuff that stuck that really stuck to you? You know, it's like that. It's like a black tar. 
that just finds its way and it hangs around and you know it's in there and it's heavy and it's suffocating but you're like ah i don't want to deal with it or i don't need to or i can deal you know whatever um would you say that realizing that you needed that therapy the counseling the treatment would you attribute that to saving your career to where you're at now to who you've become as a person as a mother as an officer yeah absolutely um there was a point so my way of dealing with it initially was to just shove everything way way down and we just don't feel any of the emotions right um so i'd almost have to put on no matter what was going on you put on the mask and go into work and i i don't know if that's being a female or if that's just like being a soldier that's seen shit um and you know the army's not very friendly to like emotional people um and so you know, and then shoving feelings down is not always great in the long run. Um, so I was, and that's where my husband was kind of coming in where he's like, you don't show anything anymore because like you were saying with that tar, like everything's down there and like, it kind of is weird and gross and icky to like touch and try and figure out. So we're just going to ignore it. Um, but that shuts off all emotions, even good ones. And so, um, yeah, there is, um, you know, I think it just kind of came to a head. I was in command and it just kind of came to a head where I was like, okay, I need to like figure this stuff out because everything is kind of, I felt like everything was kind of falling apart slowly beneath me. And I didn't know how to sort through these feelings that I previously ignored. Um, and so my therapist front and she, you know, I've been seeing her for about two, well, about a year and a half now. And she was like, oh my God, from the first session to now, like, she's like, you were just, a, you would be like super, super tight. And then you would open up a little bit and then clamp right back. You would know that you showed emotion and clamp right back down. Um, and she's like, now you just come in and, you know, cry and laugh and whatever. Um, so yeah, it, and it, and you're absolutely right. I think it's helped. I'm not afraid to admit, uh, you know, when I'm showing emotion and when I'm, I, I think I'm just so much more relaxed now. And I, I feel like that's still my default sometimes. Like I still feel myself, like if I start, you know, I show, I show personally, I show emotion by crying. Like if I'm angry or if I'm sad, if I'm frustrated, like tears just come and I don't, whatever. I don't know why it's just me. Um, but there's times where, like I'll start and then I'll be like, Oh my God. Okay. No, I got to shut it down. But then, but then I'm like, wait a minute, who cares? Like, so, so I'll just let myself go or whatever. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's really helped been sympathetic, more sympathetic, more empathetic, I guess. Um, and just able to feel things and deal with them, um, and kind of, um, and kind of roll with things a lot better. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I really found, you know, for myself, like I hit a breaking point, which I talked about on episode one, when we were with not your average operator and did that. And I talked about my, my breakdown that I had in 2017. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I've gone up in rank, been around, seen some more things. Uh, and we talk about it a lot on here. And it's part of the, like the reason we're doing this podcast is uh, it's not just about me anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I I lead other people and they look to me to see strength. Hey, hey, what's the right answer? What should I do in this situation? Because I have no idea what I'm doing. And if I'm not there taking the strides and demonstrating what needs to happen, like I can stand in front of a room and be like, if you're having mental struggles, uh, <laughs> then come to me and I'll handle it. You know what I mean? And it's like, no, because everybody thinks it's this military check in the box of like, oh, yeah. You know, so like I actually did this today. It's called human factors counseling. And you sit down with your guys one on one and you go through every aspect of their life. And it's 
honestly, it's the military saying, hey, we we attempted to identify the problem. So if anything happened, we tried, right? But it that's that is gonna be what it is, you know, and you and you said accepting what is. That's something you just got to accept is that the 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 machine doesn't really care because the machine has to move and get something done. It it takes a real leader to implement the right things into the culture to be able to speak about things like this, to be able mm-hmm. to talk about emotions. And we just did last week's episode on empathy and the importance of it and, and being able to talk to each other. And my biggest thing, you know, I told my guys today, I said, hey, you know what? If you trust me enough to take a bullet for you overseas, then you should trust me enough with your feelings when we get back here in your mental state. And let me help you that way too, because I'm here for everything, mm-hmm. you know? And um, that's how it should be. So what you got, Raph? Well, I was going to say that's So the reason I got completely shit-faced in front of Taylor was <laughs> I wanted to test her as a leader and I wanted to see if she was going to take she was going to take care of me. So, so <laughs> podcast world, I know you all think I'm a dirtbag right now, but I, again, it was part of my strategy to see what kind of leader Taylor, Taylor was and Taylor is. And Hey, listen, she passed, she passed with flying colors. So yeah, I just, I, I, I feel like that had to be said. I feel like maybe people didn't figure that out on their own. So yeah. You're hey, such a piece of work. Hey, Taylor, quick question. Um, do you want to just kind of give, because we've already talked about the crash and we've talked about you basically getting shot. Um, I don't know why I just laugh doing that. Man, that makes me feel like a psychopath. Because uh, I do like you too, so I understand. I laugh when I tell the story. <laughs> do you want to just kind of give your version of it, like a couple minutes of yeah. each one? Because people are like, what? She crashed and she got shot? Like, And she's <laughs> over here just talking to these two clowns like it's nothing? Yeah, again, either the worst pilot in the world or the luckiest pilot in the world, we'll see. Um, No, so the first one, 2015, um, again, very quick notice to deploy, very junior pilot at the time. Um, But I wanted to get better at one of the most challenging nodes of flight, which is um, dust landing on our NVGs. And so we were out training that um, in the training area, which is off off base. Um, And so we're doing it a couple of times. And then this one time, we landed a little bit harder than, than we thought, but we checked all the systems, um, everything was good. Um, and thank God, Aaron, I was flying with Aaron Richards, who is a standardization pilot. So for reference, I had, I think probably 300-ish hours at the time. He had over a thousand already. Um, and so for whatever reason, I, maybe it's just gut intuition. He's like, okay, I'll take the controls. Normally you land, you fly back up, you take the controls up. So he's, he's on the controls and we do our before takeoff checks. All of our systems are good. Um, and what had happened, we didn't know this, um, when you land the blades, you know, kind of flex down a little bit. And so they actually cut the drive shaft to the tail rotor, um, but it didn't sever it yet. So we had every, um, we had every system was already good. Um, so before takeoff check. So then he picks up uh, and then all of a sudden we start spinning um, because that, ca- that increase in torque we picked up caused the, the tail rotor to, com- the, tail- the drive shaft to completely sever and we no longer had a tail rotor. Um, <laughs> calm as day, like literally as if it's like a training recording and I feel him on the pedals. He goes, huh, I have a loss of tail rotor thrust. I'm gonna put the aircraft down. Uh, and which later came out in the accident investigation, like they can confirm this, this all happened this day. Um, and he, he, which is the right, the absolute right maneuvers to put the aircraft back down. Um, and you ask anyone in our aircraft, we all thought that we had spun seven, eight times. 
Um, but later on, you looked at the video and it was like a turn and a half. Like, <laughs> but it, everything happened. It was literally slow motion. It was literally, I felt like it was in a dream where I'm like, oh my. And I remember like trying to get my hands in front of my face because I was trying to get the um, power control overs off. I just remember like my hands going in front of my face and being like, I don't know if I'm going to make it right now. And like, as we're spinning. Um, and so luckily his skill, miracle, whatever we call it, we land because we're still turning as he's, as he's putting the controls down. So we landed and then we bounced as because the aircraft's momentum still turning. Not, I would say probably 99% of the time people would have rolled the aircraft, which would have just decimated all us. But somehow we landed and bounced and we were able to keep the wheels down. The, the tail wheel had popped off. Um, obviously the, the drive shaft was completely severed. Um, and we kind of sat there for a minute. We just did the whole, like, are you, are you okay? Are, are you, are you okay? The guys in the back buckled in, they were doing the right thing. Um, and we landed with enough force, our goggles all popped off. So like, again, adding to the confusion of the moment, we're like literally blind in the dark. Like we can't, we can't see, like, am I, am I hurt? Like, am I blind now? You know, you just said that total chaos confusion of like, what just happened? Who, how are we hurt? Are we alive? Like, are we okay? Um, but once we did the whole, like the checks with everything, um, we, we got up on the radio and were able to, to radio everyone to um, get the help that we needed. The unfortunate part was that we were outside of the base. So we're just crashed this helicopter. We're out in our lonesome and there's just, we're in, we're in the space, like the, the Apache, like, of course we had ISR overhead and it, like right away, but like the Apaches couldn't get to us for like 45 minutes. The ground force was like stuck. They couldn't find us for like 45 minutes. They had to alert you guys to come after us, which took, you know, like 50, you guys got there before like the reaction. You guys were our like reaction force and our security because you guys got there before anyone else did. But like, we're just kind of sitting out there. And like, again, after we do the whole, like everyone's fine, the adrenaline's starting to kind of finally come down. We're like, um, I'm going to, I'm going to go red on my weapon system. <laughs> and we're like, uh, okay. <laughs> and then we're like, maybe you should like, Pull guard. <laughs> so again, we're just not sure what to do because we've never been in this scenario before. So we have the crew chiefs pop out uh, and the medic pop out and they're, they're standing over here like they're M4. Like if we got attacked, like that would, that little M4 would do something. Um, but then, yeah, we, we did, a, we did everything, um, zeroed all the radios and did everything and, and got recovered um, for the evening. But that was, that was that incident. Um, the next day, um, the Chinooks totally dragged that thing in the pavement and just destroyed it. And by the end of it, it was like a quarter of the helicopter that we started with. So uh, that was that was that one. Yeah, Garrett. that was a uh, six one two, right? The infamous six one two tail number. Uh, yes, it was. And that one yeah. went to Corpus Christi and died. Like she has not right. come back to the right. army system at all. So, that was destroyed. We so totally I want to. I want to clarify something. So what Taylor and AA experienced was actually something that became kind of a systemic problem. So in that, in that period of time, we went from a Lima model to a Mike model. And in, in the, and honestly, that helicopter is entirely the same, except for there's some significant upgrades in the Mike model. The blades were a lot more efficient. The blades also uh, swooped down. Um, I don't know, whatever the, the degree was, but Basically, what that ended up causing is historically on, an, on the Lima and the previous models, no one, you could come in and you could flex nose up and flex the blades and you would come nowhere near the drive shaft. Well, what we quickly realized, because again, there was like four to six incidents very similar to this, where they're just coming in for like under NVGs and, you know, just a little bit, not, I wouldn't even say aggressive, but just anything above 15 degrees nose up. 
or just whatever condition that would create this this flexing of the blades because the the um, the hedral whatever they're called the uh, the the tip the swoop down of the blades uh, ended up now getting closer to the drive shaft and so that's kind of why you guys suffered that and it's it's crazy because after your accident I started really digging into it and I realized you guys at the time I think were like the second or third aircraft to suffer that and there was like three more following your incident so it was something that the army had to basically sit there and say holy shit we're we're still using training techniques from the Lima model and we should actually limit the amount of nose up, you know, aft cyclic. And so anyways, anyone listening can nerd out about that crap, but <laughs> I'm just saying, it's just, you guys did everything. You did what you were trained in flight school and what you've done all through your progression, but now you're, you're in a brand new aircraft. Cause remember we got those mic models right before we deployed. So it's not like we, we all had maybe 40 to 50 hours in those things. Like we, you know, it's still, it was a brand new car. It was really nice. It yeah. was. That's that's the key word. <laughs> but then we ran into the ground and destroyed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but my second, so my second one, um, it was a. So I was in, uh, I was in Bagram at the time, and so we did a lot more patient transfers um, than actual like point of injury medevacs. Um, so we had sometimes we had a little bit more time to get get to the patients, um, a lot longer flights. Um, cause you're going from, um, post-surgical stable patients and then taking them to the role three for long-term care or evacuation out of theater. Um, so this time it was, it was one of those incidents, incident, incidents, um, I think it was a gunshot wound to the arm or something. It wasn't very serious. So we were taking our time up there. We were going up to, um, Masri Sharif, um, just literally straight and level, like out of nowhere, like we're two chalks, really literally singing through the ICS system, like you do in long flights. Um, keep everyone entertained. And then um, we were just in the transition period. So we were kind of figuring out, hey, let's put goggles on. We got half half the aircraft on, on goggles, the other half's not. So we can kind of uh, delineate who's you know, who can see and stuff. Um, and then it was starting to get more dark. So then we, all, we finally ended up all getting our goggles on. Um, and then all of a sudden, um, I feel like I got punched in the face. And simultaneously, I hear this like very dainty, like cracking sound. Um, and then, and then also a spark. And so as I'm trying to like get all these like very crystal clear senses of like what just happened, um, I look down at my window and there's a, there's a hole and, and one of the, we had a nurse in the back and she was like, what was that? Cause she saw the spark. And so, um, I was on the controls and I, and I kind of put finally, again, it feels like forever. It was probably like 0.5 seconds, but it feels like forever because I'm trying to assess just what happened. Um, I was like, I think I just got fucking shot. And <laughs> Unknowingly, because I, I kind of panicked, right? So when you panic, your whole body tenses. I had transmitted this on the radio to Chalk 2. So they hear, I just got fucking shot. Um, and then in my brain, I'm like, okay, um, evasive maneuvers. I just got shot or taking fire. I need to evasive maneuver. So I transmit, I just got fucking shot. And in my brain, I'm like, okay. So then you start doing aggressive um, aircraft maneuvers. <laughs> so you're flying away, I'm dipping down, I'm dipping up. But I'll talk to here is I just got fucking shot and all they see is the aircraft going down. Oh man. <laughs> and, like, and so they're trying to get me on the radio and they're like, what the fuck's going on? Are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm just like, hey. And then finally I'm like, again, this is probably like a minute later. I'm like, I'm like, I'm probably not okay. I probably need to transfer the flight controls. Um, I'm like, I probably should transfer the flight controls and like figure everything out. So finally I transfer the flight controls to this, he was a, a even mid mid PI, luckily he can he can fly pretty much by himself. But um, I'm kind of assessing myself, <laughs> and I know I got punched in the face, so I'm doing like this. I've got blood, but then I'm like, okay, I know when people get shot, sometimes they don't feel it right away. So I'm doing this whole like 
body check, like looking at my gloves, like, is there blood pouring out from anywhere else? Like what else is going on? Um, I'm looking around the aircraft. There's a hole in my window. There's a hole um, called the greenhouse in the window up top. Um, and I'm like, just trying to like figure out making radio calls. Um, I distinctly remember I was trying to radio back to um, the, the talk and uh, <laughs> these Chinooks were blocking up the radio because they're trying to get a weather brief. So they're like, you know, I was like, hey, you know, whatever x-ray, this is Dustoff 47. Um, and they're like, stand by Dustoff 47. And they're trying to give this whole fucking weather brief, like cloud layers are blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, break, 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 get the fuck off the radio. And I'm trying to like relay this. Luckily, Chuck too, um, again, they still didn't know what happened because I didn't have, I was trying to like kind of focus on like the, the order of things and get my mind right to figure out the radios. Um, luckily, they kind of gave me enough space and they helped me out doing the recording and then they're like hey you know we're almost at the we're almost at the base like do you want to keep going and i was like yeah let's just keep going that's a safe spot we're we're you know i don't know five minutes out from the base we'll just increase altitude and keep going so we landed we got permission we had to shut down and do battle damage assessment make sure the aircraft wasn't damaged um to the point of not being able to fly it so we shut it down and lit and you know where you think you would have one bullet hole, you think there would be like multiple, you think we would just like continuously have gotten shot maybe down the side, was one fucking bullet hole in my fucking window. And the way um, the, the cockpit is set up, we have an armor wing panel that's probably, I mean, we're probably like nine inches, 12 inches long, maybe. Um, and the, the bullet had hit the very, very, luckily I, you could extend it and, and retract it. Luckily it was extended. It hit the very, very end of it so that it wasn't even a complete circle at the end of this armor wing panel. It was like three quarters of a circle. And so what happened, the bullet hit that and exploded. And the piece went into my face, a piece went into my goggles, which was the spark. A piece went up through the greenhouse. Uh, later on when we landed and we did a full BDA under um, the hangar light, there's a piece that went right behind my head um, into what's called the broom closet, which is like literally all the controls for the aircraft. So if that one had gotten like shot up, that would have been bad. Um, there's pieces, they found shrapnel underneath my seat. Um, I like literally hit the armor wing panel and just exploded in and around my face. Um, so again, very, very lucky on that piece too. But we were, we were on the ground at uh, Madri, actually it was near, which is next, which is near Madri Sharif. Um, and as we're doing this BDA, we're, we're, and we're called up to the talk to give them a full report, um, we got notification of a mass cow inbound. So um, I called them back and I was like, hey, can we stay on the ground here? Um, there's a mass cow, which means it's gonna, and the, the um, amount of beds in that, in that um, uh, surgical team was gonna be overwhelmed. So I was like, can we stay on ground here until they're done treating this new mass cow that's coming in? And then we can clear the battlefield of like all casualties here and like get that, allow that hospital to reset. And they're like, yeah, sure, that's fine. So we repositioned so the um, new medevac can come in with like, and they had five more patients, which was totaling now, I think 11 patients at this hospital. Um, and so we cleared and as we're, as we're clearing, so we start up the aircraft again, we reposition. Now the base is getting mortared. So like just got shot, still had an adrenaline um, and now we're getting mortared. And now as I'm sitting there waiting for the patients to come in and now they're treating all this like this heavy bleeding and, and doing their trauma care. Um, now we're like continuously getting shot and I'm like, okay, I, I kind of want to, I kind of want to go back now. <laughs> I'm kind of over it. Like, can we, can we go? Um, but I mean, we couldn't, we're, we're stuck there obviously. And, um, we're going to take these patients. So finally, um, we get the, pa the patients are all treated. We get them onto the aircraft and, uh, on the way back we had on the way there, we had flown, our deck was 1500 feet. We flew at like 2000 feet. 
Um, on the way back, we flew at like 9,000 feet. So we were just like, all right, we're gonna, we're just gonna avoid everything, avoid people at all costs now. Um, and then we landed and, and did the full BDA. And um, uh, I was, I think, I, I was telling Raph, I think next time I'll have to bring in my show and tell it. I've got the armory panel, the, the crew chiefs were able to secure that for me. Um, and then I've got the bullet, I got some bullet fragments for it um, as a souvenir. And then that, the damage is, I just got a scar on my lip for it. So again, super, super lucky with that too. Um, but definitely something I won't, I won't forget. And when everyone wrote up their sworn statements about it, everyone made sure to note, to note that I said over the radio that I just got fucking shot, quoted verbatim everyone's <laughs> sworn statement. So uh, I like it. That sticks with me too. Well, geez, uh, that that's, the only thing I, I can respond, I mean, I mean, I, I know what I want to say or whatever, but did you know that Tom Brady play had to play football this season <laughs> and that he, you know, it, it's a tough job. Did you know that? I don't know. He, he mentioned something about comparing to, to a military. No, he's deployment. also at risk for head trauma, severe head trauma. So, you know, it's same, same, same. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it sounds similar. <laughs> I mean, I hear him talking in his press conference and I hear a lot of similarities is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> so you're saying I'm like Tom Brady is what I hear. Basically, it's what I'm saying. The female version, yes. <laughs> you're you're a champ for sure. Um you you mentioned that you kept your your panel and and some you know some memories pretty much from those things. Yes. Uh I have some as well. I have a picture and I talked about an incident where I ran over an IED twice in the LTA TV that should have went off with a pressure plate, five pound pressure uh trigger and a 900 pound vehicle and hit it perfectly twice and it never went off. And I kept that picture from the ISR platform for a long time. And for a long time, I, I honestly don't know why I kept it, but it was like a negative to me. Mm. And it reminded me that I shouldn't be here sometimes. And it was like this thing that dragged me down and I still kept it. And it wasn't until after, you know, we discussed that you really start digging in and facing the problem and what really happened when when you're ready i'll say when you're ready to because everybody everybody's time frame is different raf and i talked about it that it hit me immediately versus him it took months for it things to really sink in um which is totally okay but after a while and i start processing it it was no longer a negative thing of like, look how this terrible thing happened to me. Like, this is why my life can suck because I've been through so many terrible things. And this is why I'm not a good person or why I'm not this or that. And it turned into, wow, I should really be grateful for today. You know, I, I am still here and I'm very happy that I was able to wake up and see the sunrise that I was sitting around having coffee this morning or for you like that I got to see my kids and, and it's the simple things that become just like so much sweeter more beautiful uh and, and and that now when I look at that that reminder as I'm sure that you know you kind of look at it you're older now like you said when you're younger you're kind of like oh yeah hey I survived it what's next now it's kind of like yeah I survived that wow I'm extremely blessed I'm I'm lucky you know like what can I do now to not waste time. Like you said, you know, I don't know when this is going to happen again, or if this is going to happen again, you never know what life is going to bring you, you know, but it really makes you think and appreciate things a lot more. 
And uh, I've actually had these really good conversations last couple of days with some friends that are veterans and Veterans Day is coming up. And I think it's about to be Veterans Day when this is going to be released. So uh, I think these are great points, conversations, great things that you're bringing up and sharing and the the emotions, the that the the comedy of it you know i think we all learn to laugh in the military at terrible things because it's i think at first it's a coping thing but then later on i think we kind of laugh at ourselves because of how we acted and we're like Mm -hmm. what i was such an an idiot like what the hell was i thinking you know like that's that's stupid and then we can kind of really laugh at it later but um you know personally i i really i listen to you and i try to put myself in your in that seat and both times and and what you're going through versus you know talking offline before the show is just kind of like you'd never know that about you Mm -hmm. and to to me i think that's extreme uh it's extreme growth and you can tell that you've taken the time to really face some of those fears and that that deep down stuff uh and, and you're better for it and and i just feel so I know, I know we all do. I I feel so terrible and I try to figure out what I can do to help some of the veterans or still active duty uh, that I see every day and be like, man, I I know you're hurting or I know you you're scared to face this stuff, but like, let's just sit around. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's go out and have, have a beer or have some coffee or like just sit around a fire, you know, when it all comes out and really set it because it really hits me hard in the heart when you when you hear about people struggling and especially in the military because we're such a tight-knit group and uh the point that you said i don't know if it's about being a female or a soldier i don't think it matters i i think it matters that because we're all human beings you, you know at the end of the day we're all humans and we all have emotions we all we're not robots we're not built for certain things we're not built to see war we're not built to jump out of airplanes we're not built to be under the water you know, but we do it and and we push those limits. And the minute we forget that, man, I'm just a, I'm just a person at the end of the day, my title, there's no magic fairy dust that gets sprinkled on us that we can deal with everything that's just coming down to is just, man, I'm just a, I'm just me. And I'm trying to figure out to do this the best way I can. And yeah, that was, that was really powerful, Taylor. I really appreciate you sharing that stuff. Thanks. I think it's interesting you bring up the, um, you know, the memorabilia, so to say, I think there was a point and you said like, you know, it doesn't revolve or it's not in the forefront of like who I am now anymore. Uh, it's definitely shaped me, but I, going back to the memorabilia, I think it's interesting because I think there was a point in time when it was fresh and like, you almost wanted to talk about it, but you didn't want to talk about it, but you were like, like <laughs> I was like, Hey, look, did you see this? Like, this is cool. Like, look what I did. Um, and now I almost forget like, oh yeah, 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 that happened. Like people bring it up and be like, oh yeah, I forgot. Like you didn't forget about it, but you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that happened. Like, okay. Uh, and that's definitely signified in like, I guess my show and tell of my of my stuff. Like, um, yeah, it's like sitting at the office now and it's, it's part of it, it's cool, it's part of my story, but it's not who I am. It doesn't define me. That's not the only point in my career that I talk about. Um, and I think it, it was for a while because in a, in a subconscious way, I, I needed to talk about it. They needed to process it, but I didn't know how to do that. And then going on what you said, like having those hard conversations with people that you know, that cognitive processes thing therapy I was talking about from my PTSD, that was not easy. Like that, I can talk about it now and I can talk about it kind of fondly because of, of the impact it's had now going, but when I was in the middle of it, oh my gosh, it was hard. 
And there are some hard questions. There were times the therapist, you know, she'd ask me, okay, well, why do you feel that way? Or why, why do you think that is? And I would just sit there and be like, I have no idea. And I would just be like a mess. And my brain was just going. And, and so you really kind of, you kind of, you have to, I think in a very, in a controlled way and with someone that can help you or someone that you really trust, you're very vulnerable and you have to go through some really hard, ugly questions and internal thought processes before you can kind of pick up all the pieces and put them back together correctly. And it's still, I had my story with, um, and driving onto post and where it hit me out of nowhere, it still can hit you. I mean, that's the thing with PTSD is that it's still there. Um, it's just now I've got more tools and I'm, and I'm at a better place to kind of deal with that now. Um, and so I think you're absolutely right in using that to engage and advocate and tell your story um, so that, you know, people that are like, oh, well, you seem, you seem okay. So maybe, you know, it worked for you. Maybe, maybe I should try that. And I, I, I 100% agree with you. I think we, I think we need to be those advocates. I think uh, well, it, it really hits me. So every, every Veterans Day or Thanksgiving or Christmas, when, when I get off, I, I like to go to the VA. And, you know, again, just mentioning Veterans Day coming up, I remember as a small kid, I'd always look up to, you know, Vietnam veterans and stuff. And so the Gulf War, you know, like that kind of era. And I always admired them, the way they spoke about life, the way they spoke about their service, things bigger than themselves. Hey, you should appreciate this more. And they always had this, I don't know, I don't want to be weird about it, but like this aura around them, the way they carried themselves, the way they spoke, the way they felt things was totally different from anybody else normal that have never served in the military. And as I go through my career, you know, I'm about to hit like 16 years now, going from a young person, you're like, you were talking, I was young, I was head on fire, everything's fun and crazy. And you're like, yep, that's it. Like, what's next? I survived. You know, I, I had the same stuff. I think we all have. As you get older, you start thinking about it, you know, and I would be a fool not to is I'm going to be that person one day when the next generation or two generations are coming to talk to me as an old man and they're going, why are you the way you are? You know, <laughs> wh what did you do in the military? What did you do in the service? And how did that affect you? And how do you think about life and all these other things now? And like, it excites me to be honest because I'm on this journey of processing all of it. It's a, it's a shit ton. I don't know if I'll ever get through all of it, but like, I, I feel like I'm taking small bites. You know, it's like, how do you need an elephant one bite at a time? And I get excited to think about some of the lessons and the things that I can share that maybe might inspire the next generation or somebody to go and stand up and, and do what all, all, you know, the three of us did. Well, the four of us, including Melon, about uh, passing on that torch and passing on these lessons that, that we've we've learned through, through struggle, through pain, through, uh, you know, <laughs> go down the list. And, uh, I think that's what's special about us. You know, I really feel that bond when I'm around other active duty or veterans and we don't talk about it all the time. You know, it's just that unspoken, like I already know, but <laughs> when you really take a step back as a good friend of mine, that's, you know, in a blue shirt with a comb over right now, looking at me, he said, dude, sometimes you need to step back and like realize where you're at and like what you've done mm -hmm. and where you're going and it's really special so you know I, I listen to your story I think about my own I think about RAF and fast forward 20 years from now it's just like man what's that going to look like like I think it's going to be pretty cool you know with the journey that we're on so 
you know, I, I, I don't know. I think it's a blessing, like all, all of this to talk about it and share these things. And I hope to, for you, the listeners out there, you know, listening to these things, sometimes I wish I didn't have, I couldn't speak about these things, but at the same time, it's a double-edged sword. And I'm, I'm so happy that I'm still here and it can, and can speak about them in the way that we do because we know it helps people and maybe it's helping you right now hearing these stories. So yeah, uh, this is, uh, this is cool. Go ahead, ref. Hit the unmute button, you turd. <laughs> Dude, I got every time. Every time I press the screen, the stupid microphone thing would come up, and then as I'm getting my thumb closer, it would go away. So I'm like, God damn it! So I had to, and I did it like seven times. It was pretty embarrassing. I was like, I'm a clown. Um, on a serious note, uh, Adam, as you edit this, uh, you can edit out Mike at any time. Actually, just edit out his voice every chance you get. But on a serious note. I just want people to really understand how high functioning Taylor really is. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a friend. I'm saying that because I worked underneath her and I saw her. She's not kidding when she says she really filtered a lot of bullshit from everyone underneath her, like from every, everyone above us. And it, and I know, cause I was a maintenance guy. I, I know what higher headquarters generally tends to do, which is always make everyone else's life more miserable beneath them. And I can honestly say serving having served with her and her having as my immediate supervisor, as my platoon leader, um, it was like, she filtered a lot of bullshit and I really, really, and it wasn't just me. We all really appreciated the fact that she screened all that stuff. Right. And it's, and maybe it's part, it's part of her DNA. Cause she's very, uh, you know, she's articulate. She's smart. She's funny. Like clearly she likes to laugh. She's got a contagious laugh. Like you, you knew she was in the room cause you'd hear her laughing about something, you know, there was, about herself or just something, just something stupid. And you're like, Oh, Taylor's in the room. Cool. Let me go see what this is all about. Um, but it, I really thoroughly enjoyed serving with you because it, I always knew that you genuinely cared about everyone that you served with. And, and I knew that you were going to protect us from just the bullshit. Um, and so I, I just, but I, I think it's important for people to understand that here's a person who looked like we just gave you just a small glimpse of a resume. She's genuinely a high functioning individual and she still had these struggles, right? So, and I just want to highlight that because I think it's important to understand that this, you know, PTSD issues with, you know, like, again, we talked about offline how we all struggle with identity issues, right? You do something for so long that you really, really care about. And now you're going to go on to something more important, you know, motherhood, whatever your other next career is. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have issues. You are. I mean, you clearly opened up about it. Even back when we met up in, in Honolulu, I can tell that you were in the middle of that process. Um, but it, but it's more the reason why I really genuinely love you as a person, because I think you're, you're real, you are pretty authentic and it's really hard to misconstrue that, right? Like either you are, or you aren't. And I, again, it, I was just very fortunate to, to have served with you. And I think people should understand that someone, even at this high level of function, um, in society can still have these issues. And it's just a matter of, like you said, using the right tools to process these issues and, and, and then, and then knowing that this isn't the end, the end all be all like, Hey, there's fucking more on the other side. You just have to, you just have to experience a little bit of pain. You know, it's just, most of our growth comes with pain. It's just, it's just the way of the world. There's no way around it. Well, I think, uh, we're about that time and it's a good, uh, spot to leave it on. So, uh, Raph, would you like to leave anything, uh, before we sign off? Yeah, just, um, 
obviously this is the beginning of a, of a couple of episodes we're going to do with Taylor. Um, the next episode, when you guys do listen to it, I actually just ask that you listen to this first to kind of hear her backstory. And then the second episode will actually make the most sense, right? Which is the transition from this job and profession she absolutely loved and dedicated herself a thousand percent into, um, and then to this other step. And it's something that I think anybody who's listening can really relate to, right? Your story is unique to yourself. This is Taylor's journey, but I think it's really pivotal and it's significant. And I think it's worth a listen. So thanks for listening to this episode. She will definitely be back for, for second, second go. We just, we just ran out of time, unfortunately, because she's, because she's done so, so fucking much. It's like, we can just cram it all into like two minutes. (laughs) Taylor, how about yourself? What would you like to uh, leave the audience with? Uh, well, first, I'd like to thank Raph for the extremely kind words. Um, I really appreciate it. And it, in going through what I'm going through now, um, hearing that I've made at least an impact, even if it's just one person, then that that made everything worth it. So I really, really appreciate your kind words. And I'm looking forward to be back. Yeah, we're definitely looking forward to having you. This I, I, I want to hear some more stories outside of Jersey where he you found him <laughs> on the side of a road in a ditch out in the middle of a field naked. You know, it could be anything. We want to hear it. So we appreciate those too. But uh, that's uh, that's it for this week. Uh, think about uh, reaching out. I know it's almost Veterans Day here in the United States, November 11th. And uh, you hear some of these stories, reach out to some active duty or veterans that maybe you know, and uh, discuss some of these stories as, as Taylor shared with us. You know, these, these are things that really can be a you know, the catalyst of who they are as a person or as a leader, as a soldier, as a, as a, as a mother, as a father, and really get to know them and ask them about uh, what they did and uh, some of their experiences. And I guarantee you're going to learn something about them and also probably about yourself. So look us up on uh, Instagram, Facebook, check us out around uh, Apple podcast, Spotify, and uh, heroes media group online. And uh, we'll be posting more. And we look forward to uh, hearing from everybody. Reach out to us, send us some responses. If you'd like to contact Taylor, uh, we will get them to her and send them back out to you immediately. We love getting messages from everybody. We always take time to read and respond. And uh, we look forward to it. So until next week, cheers. (laughs) 